that time of the week again. It's time for Chit Chat Across the Pond. This is episode number 467 for December 10th, 2016. And I'm your host, Allison Sheridan. This week, our guest is again, Bart Bouchatz with Programming by Stealth, episode 26 of X. How are you doing today, Bart? I am doing just fine. Well, I had a lot Despite of fun with... Work Christmas party yesterday. So. Oh, <laughs> you survived it, huh? Survived, survived. Well, I want to give a shout out to Dorothy right away for uh, helping me with the homework. Uh, you helped me quite a bit. Uh, actually, we, sh- we should talk about that first. When I asked Bart for help with the homework, he, uh, he very politely suggested I sounded like a student after a really long summer vacation. <laughs> which is exactly what I was expecting to happen. Uh, because between Thanksgiving and which, much merriment and family fun... A lot of time had passed since since you were in the code editor. Yeah, I I had apparently not only been on summer vacation, I'd been in in uh, Florida at you know spring break, woohoo! Kind of a vacation. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like what? I didn't understand yeah, anything. Knowledge evaporates surprisingly quickly if you haven't exercised it enough to get it stuck in good and tight. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, we'll get we'll get that going. But I, I got back on the horse with your help. And then uh, Dorothy helped me help me uh, quite a bit as I went into the second piece. And she didn't tell me any of the answers. She did a great job of just putting little little breadcrumbs out to help me go down the right path. And uh, and it was a lot of fun. Right. She was kind of fixing hers at the same time. So we kind of did it together. It was awesome. Excellent. Cool. OK, uh, so for this time, we're going to look at uh, obviously this the solution to last time's challenge, which I, I think I said explicitly to say, you know, create a naive first draft at a clock. Right. And then what we're going to do together today is to make a less naive second draft at a clock. Mm. And then your assignment will be a very unnaive final draft of a clock. Uh-oh. Like a proper, really good API that you could put your name to. You know what I'm really sad about, Bart, is that at the end of the previous episode where you gave us the clock homework, I was really mad at you for having done so much of the clock for me and that you didn't leave hardly anything for me to do. And I didn't tell you that. I was like, I wish I could. I wanted to do it myself. And then, of course, I got in there where you spoon fed everything and left one little bit for me to do. And I still couldn't do it. Well, you see, if you'd done the homework straight away, I don't I don't think that would have been I don't think you would have. had. The, I think your, your first reaction may have been closer to the mark. Maybe but because the time had passed, it transformed. I appreciate uh, your confidence in me. I think it's unfounded. But... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look, we're on part twenty something, and we're still here. So yeah, my I'm confidence still is completely misfounded. No, no, and I'm still enjoying it. That's for sure. Good. All right. Okay. So in the show notes is my solution to the challenge, uh, which is on the whole. We, we were chatting before before we started recording. We had a look at your solution and it looked very similar. Um, so our render clock function, we take in as arguments a jQuery object that is going to be that's going to represent the span that we're going to transform into a clock, and then the time zone that we would like the time in, please. Um, so I do a little bit of validation of my arguments because that's just the way I roll. So I want to make sure that the dollar span variable, as I call the first argument, really is an object. It really is an instance of jQuery. It really is a length of one, and it is in fact a span. Otherwise, I get cranky and I throw an error. Yeah, so how does it already know what that that dollar span is an object? How does it already know that? You haven't created it yet. Okay, well, we're defining a function, not running a function. We're defining Expelliarmus, not doing Expelliarmus. Oh, okay, so when we call it... There will be a something there. When we say returns dollar span, there will be something there that was created. 
That's well, we're going to say pbs.renderClock something. So when you're defining a function, you have no idea what's going to be called. You're working in the abstract. That's the point of a function. So you're saying, whatever I am called with, I shall call $span. Okay. And I am then going to say, okay, so I don't know what you're going to call me with, but when you do call me, I'm going to make sure you haven't called me with something stupid, like render clock four. Wait, can't do anything with that. Render clock four would be nonsense. Render clock, you know, dollar something or other would be sensible. Hmm. I guess this this level that. of indirection keeps causing you trouble, and I, I mm-hmm. no idea how I'm going to get. I've tried every different. Well, so you know, maybe I can make my question more clear. So you say pbs.renderclock mm-hmm. equals function dollar span comma tz. So that's that time zone mm-hmm. thing. All right. Mm-hmm. So then the first thing you say is, well, dollar span better be an object. Well, wait a minute. Yes. We haven't defined dollar span yet. How can it ask the question, are you an object if you don't exist yet? Okay. But when this function runs, we are not. Right. Okay. We are writing code here, which is not running immediately. This fo- this code will not execute until someone actually calls our function. Right. So, so somebody the point, calls so, the function p- uh, pbs.renderclock. Somebody calls that function. So they will at that point and, have passed an argument. And we are we are saying. How did it pass an argument? Because they went pbs renderclock open round bracket something comma something close round bracket semicolon. Okay. That's it. That was the piece. Good. Okay. So when you're writing the function, you have no idea how it's going to be called. So all you're saying on line 34 there, I am saying I will call whatever it is the person passes me. I am going to call it dollar span in my code because I have to give it some sort of a nickname, right? Yeah. don't know what it'll be, but I give it a nickname. I say, to me, you are dollar span. And then I just go and say, okay, well, I really do hope that you passed me an object. So let's go check that. Okay, that makes sense. And then I go, okay, fine, whatever you gave me. I did warn you in the documentation that I would empty it. So I say dollar span that empty. Poof. We now have a completely empty container. So then I start building up some pieces. So I call them dollar hour, dollar separator, and dollar minutes, which if we're making a clock, I guess you can make an educated guess at what I would like them to be. So yeah. then we shove those three into our newly emptied span. So at that point, we have a very boring clock. It contains an empty, a span with no text that contains three more spans, mostly with no text, although the middle one has a colon popped in. So you did something I didn't do, and I don't know what you're doing there, is you did an oh. add class, quote, PBS dash hours, unquote. Yeah, so I'm just adding a CSS class to make it easier for me to style things later. Okay, so, I so will you know haven't every- styled them yet. That's just, uh, you're putting a hook there for yourself? I'm putting a hook there for for any user of the API who may decide that I want my hours to be pink. Okay. Gotcha. Maybe maybe I may disagree with their taste, but I figure you can never have too many CSS classes. Throw them in there so then any user of your thing can say, well, actually, I want the separator to be twice as big as the ordinary text. Well, now they have a way because it's got a class so they can address it. Uh, I guess that's just sort of good practice. I didn't explicitly tell people to do it. Uh, I just always do it out of habit. I like it. Uh, so the, the next thing I do is I create a local function whose job in life it will be to give the time, to to actually write the time into our newly initialized span that now has these little spans inside it. So the first thing we do is we use the uh, moment.js library to get an object representing the current time, and I'm going to give it the very imaginative n- name of 
now. So var now equals moment dot tz, and then I pass in the time zone that was passed to the function. So that could be anything, but any you know, so it gets shoved into moment.js to deal with. Okay, so we have our object representing now, the current time. And so then we simply set the text property of our hours and our minutes spans to the hours and minutes, which we can extract from the now object using moment.js's format function. So the format function, you basically, it has a whole bunch of things it can accept to, for, for how you form a thing. So HH is the 24-hour version of the hour with a leading zero if necessary. Uh, and MM is the current minutes with a leading zero if necessary. So that's what we want for a nice clock. Right. We don't the want capitals, it to be... I think, were, were, uh, is also a 24-hour clock. If you do lowercase, it's a uh, 12-hour clock. Dorothy figured yes. that out. Yes, indeed. Um, yes, and I link in the last week's assignment to the documentation, which tells you all the different things you can do in the format string. Yeah. And there's a lot, because it's moment.js is a nice library. So we create this little local function called render time. And then the very first thing we do is we execute that function. We say render time because we may as well have our clock have some content in it as soon as we can. So let's do that. So there we go. Render time done. Uh, we're now going to make a variable that I'm just going to call do fade. And I'm going to set it to true because I want to keep track of whether I want the little blinky thing to blink in or to blink out. So I'm just, I've decided to call it do fade to mean, yeah, I want to go out. And if do fade is false, then I want to come in. If you get what I mean. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you keep track of it otherwise, I guess. But that's, that's how I chose to keep track of it. And then I create an interval that's going to run every second. And in there, I say, uh, separate the fader either in or out, depending on the value on whether do fade is true or false. So if do fade is true, then we go to we fade to zero. Otherwise, we fade to one. And is that that this turner, is, ternary thing? That is our three-part operator again, our question mark colon. So if do fade is true, then the first thing happens. Otherwise, the second thing happens. So we're fading to either zero or one. In other words, we fade in and we fade out. Interesting that way makes to sense? do it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Interesting way to do it. I didn't do it that way, but that's, I will accept it. <laughs> yes. Well, basically, you could have wrote an if statement and have two. So if something separator.fade something else separator.fade something, mm -hmm. but this is sort of more compact, nicer yeah, code. And now that now that we're not spoon feeding anymore, I don't find myself writing on longer code than mm -hmm. I would do in the real world. Um, and then the next line is another example of shortening things. So basically, if I faded last time, I don't want to fade next time. And if I faded this time, I, you know, I want to do I want to flip them around. So I just say do fade equals not do fade. So, so if it's true, it it's becomes just, false. Yeah, that's an interesting way to do it. I like it. Yeah. So again, we have I've written in two very short lines the logic there, but basically we we fade in or we fade out, and then we swap around. So the next time around, we do the opposite. What is and the that first, will make it blink? What's the first thing in in fade to at two fifty? That is the milliseconds for the animation. Millisecond. Okay. Okay. So a quarter of a second to fade in. And a quarter of a second to fade out. You can play around with that because I, I guess if you if you wanted your your blinker never to be at the same brightness, you could have it take a whole second to fade in and then a whole second to fade out, and then it would never stop moving. Yeah, I played with that a whole lot, and it didn't change the uh, speed. It didn't change it. It looked exactly the same. Well, you only have a second, remember, before it gets called again. 
So yeah, said, what you just saw doing on mine, that very slow fade, that was set to a hundred. Hundred okay, milliseconds, so, a tenth of a second, and it it takes a second to go. It's just kind of weird. I thought that's what would happen. Okay, uh, I must have another closer look at your I think code. The, I uh, think the interval is what might actually change it. Well, the interval okay, so the interval is how second, right, right. So the interval is how often your little inner function gets called, and in my mm-hmm. inner function. I'm saying to use a quarter of a second for the animation. But the thing is, if you call the outer function too quickly again, if you had set in the inner function to fade over two and a half seconds, that fade would never finish before jQuery is told, actually, no, I've changed my mind. Go back up again. Right. But I've got I've got my interval set to one second, a thousand milliseconds, and I've got fade to set to 100. And I can't change that to 100 to 500. It doesn't matter. It doesn't change the speed visually to me anyway. So I'm not sure. Okay, well, it, it might be something else I did wrong. We can, we can have a look at it afterwards. But remember, you're yeah. working within a second because okay. whatever you do is going to be overwritten within a second. You're going to tell it something else. So subtle changes you make are going, we're talking fractions of a second here. So I guess if you made it, if you set your interval to run every two seconds, then you could have a more subtle blink. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the point is we make it come on and we make it go away. I like uh, it. And then the last thing we do is we add an interval that every 60 seconds, which is 60 times 1,000. Now, I intentionally write it as 60 star 1,000 because I can't read 60,000 <laughs> and tell whether I have the right number of zeros. So if I wanted that to be every hour, I'd put 60 star 60 star 1,000, mm-hmm. which is just a trick for making your own code readable when someone insists on working in milliseconds. And we call render time. So that's our little function that we wrote above to change the time on the clock. So every second, we make the, the cursor blink, and every minute, we make the time change. And then, just for politeness, we return the new span we've created. Just Probably for politeness? Don't. Yeah, we don't really need to return that, right? But we we Why? just do, because someone may find it useful. I don't understand. I thought Well, we they had passed to it in that. as the first argument. Well, no. So, if you say var my clock equals pbs.render clock, and then you would get the span that you put in back out, it's you don't have to return it. Hmm. Everything we've done will work fine. The only reason you return it is in case someone wants to save a copy of the span somewhere into some variable. A return okay. statement is just what spits out. Okay. So you, oh, okay, okay, I got you. Okay. So that, that's my solution to the homework, which isn't particularly many lines of code, but it, it does its thing. All right, we better get moving. Okay, I just so, noticed I've been asking you questions for 18 minutes. <laughs> it's fine, it's fine. Um, but we'll we'll move on to new stuff. So I am going to teach you about a new concept, just one new concept today. And that new concept is something called an HTML data attribute. So you can, according to the HTML5 specification, you can include data about an HTML element inside the HTML element. And the way you the rule for that is that the attribute has to start with data minus, and then you give it some sort of name that you would like. So as a very dumb example, we could have a list of items in a store and we could embed the SKU for the item right into the the item's list element inside the list. So you see the code there, UL, and then you have LI, data minus SKU equals 1234, Bart's widget, and then data, SKU, 12345, Bart's dongle, uh, Bart's thingamajig, it's another SKU. So we're just putting in some data. That will have no visual effect whatsoever there is just some data now inside that element which means we could access it using javascript 
Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Uh, there are some rules on the naming of things. They have to be named with separated by dashes and be in all lowercase. Okay. So you can't say, so you'd say data minus unit minus price, not data minus unit and then price with a capital P. That is just a rule. And okay. that rule, the reason for that rule becomes obvious when you see the JavaScript half of this. Hmm. Okay. So using jQuery, we can now access those data attributes. We can read them, but because of how HTML5 is written, the rule are that if the actual raw HTML was data minus unit minus price, in jQuery world, that becomes unit price and camel case. Oh, jQuery just changes it? Not jQuery, HTML5. jQuery is just obeying the HTML5 spec. So yes, it's weird. Yes, it's confusing. No, it's not jQuery's fault. It's the W3C's fault. And applies a mapping to data attribute names, converting them to camel case. You won't see that visually, though? Okay, so the, well, the, the data minus input minus price becomes data minus unit minus price becomes unit price. Where does it become that? Not, not If I type it in, does it change it? No. So when I want to access it via jQuery, I have to say the bit of data I'm looking for is unit price. Whereas in the HTML, the bit of data is data minus unit minus price. What if I had called it unit price with no dash in between? It then would I would have to get it price. back as unit price. Okay. So the data minus always gets stripped away. So the way jQuery accesses these things is with the function data. So the first argument is the name of the data attribute you want to access. And this is the short camel case version of the name. So if we want to get at our SKU from the first example, we would just say data SKU, not data, data minus SKU, if you see what I mean. Say that one more time. Okay, just say, so in the H2... Just that last sentence, just that last, but you would say what to access it? So to access it, you would pass to, to jQuery's data function, the shortened version of the name. So just SKU would be what you pass. Okay, Whereas so in the HTML, it's the big, long, stretched out one. I guess I don't see how that's long or short. We just added SKU to data dash. So SKU is exactly the same. It's not shorter or longer. It's the same. You just okay, say don't data use data dash. dash. No, no. Okay. So within the HTML, you have to say data dash and then some name you've made up. And within the JavaScript, the you string you just say you the name you've made up. It's just the name you've made up. Yeah. Okay. So it's not shorter than the name you made up. It's just the name you made up without the data dash at the front. Yeah. Okay. Um, All right. Okay. It's. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. It causes much confusion. So I figured hmm. we need to focus on it. Okay. You will often see people's code where they try to write in the HTML exactly what they have in the JavaScript and it all goes terribly wrong. Because you have this conversion to camel case and all sorts of stuff going on. Mm. Okay. Once you're aware of it, it's not magic anymore and yeah. it's fine. But when you're not aware that that mapping is happening, it looks like black magic. The kind that breaks everything. Not not the good kind of magic. It. it it, oh, it causes so such weird bugs in people's code. So that's why I'm stressing it. Okay. So if you call jQuery's data function with two arguments instead of one, what you're actually doing is editing the data attribute to give it a new value. So you call it with just the name of a data attribute, you get back the value. If you call it with two, you set the value. So that's a very that's very much like everything else we've done in jQuery land. I, yeah. Um... Hmm. Where is that in the notes somewhere? I don't see what you yeah, just did. It, Where it, it Read is a line for me there. 
Vardongle screen. Uh, you can access the SKU of the dongle with. Oh, okay. Okay, there you go. So I, I read and understood that. And then you were saying, because that has two things. It has do, uh, hashtag dongle uh, or pound dongle and it has SKU under data. So I thought that was two things. That's one thing. Okay, now the data function takes a single argument here, the string mm-hmm. SKU. Oh, so it's, okay, it's two arguments on data that sets the the object value? What? What sets the value of the data attribute. Sets the so, value of the data attribute. So I said data parentheses skew comma one, two, three, three. That means I've taken one, two, three, three and shoved it into data dash skew? Yes. Okay. Okay. Yes, exactly. That's it, exactly. So the jQuery's data function allows you to either pull values out of a data attribute or shove them into a data attribute, so get or set. Okay. And just like with everything else we've done in jQuery, if you give it two arguments, you're setting. If you give it one argument, you're getting. Okay, anyway, the point being, we can put data into any HTML element on the page. We could put data into paragraphs. We could put data into headings. We could shove data anywhere we like. We can now spew our data wherever we like. Why would we, we should want probably to do, do that? this carefully? Uh, well, there, it, it's a good way, actually, of getting information from HTML to JavaScript. So we are going to see in our improved clock that we can use it to specify the time zone right there in the HTML instead of afterwards. So we're going to see that in action later. Specify the time zone in HTML. So our improved clock is going to actually just work by apparent magic. So the way it's going to work is you're going to write some HTML and you're going to make a span that has a special class. And then when the page loads, it magically becomes a clock. And you tell it what time zone to be in by giving it a data attribute. Okay. So let's say we'll see that in in a worked example at the end. So you actually see the HTML and you'll see its effect. Okay. And then you'll see why having it as a data attribute means that there's less work for the users of your API. They just, it just works. They have less to do and they get the outcome they want. And that's, that's what we want to achieve. We're trying to be nice, friendly people when writing APIs. Mostly because, mostly because we're being friendly to ourselves, because we're going to be the main users of our own code. And I like being nice to me. <laughs> I appreciate it. Now, we're going to do a little bit of revision now. Uh, and then we're going to extend our knowledge a little bit. So this is, we're going into the Wayback Machine here a little bit. But we learned about creating our own prototypes many, many moons ago before before we got into, well, we were still working in pure JavaScript land before we left the playground. We were were creating our own prototypes. So we defined a constructor function which had the same name as a prototype we're building. So in this case, I'm using the wonderfully exciting name myPrototype in the example. And then in our constructor, we initialized some data. So this dot underscore stuff equals boogers. Always we're saying that. Yes. What does that line mean again? So we are assigning a property of Okay, so the job of a constructor is to build an object. Right. And we're saying that the object we build will contain a key called underscore stuff, which will have a value of boogers. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. And we're saying that if the constructor was passed an argument, then we will change this underscore stuff to arguments zero. So in other words, if we had an argument, stuff won't be boogers, stuff will be whatever you said it was. Okay. We have this concept of accessor methods for accessing the data inside of our object. So name of prototype dot the keyword prototype dot name of function. My prototype. So we are defining a new function with the name stuff. Okay. Which will be available on every my prototype object. 
And that function's job is to reach into the object and find underscore stuff and give it back to you. So stuff fetches this dot underscore stuff. Okay. So the naming is the naming is okay. very intentional. Okay. That they are similar to each okay. other. Okay. Um, if you pass an argument, you're changing the value of underscore stuff. If you don't pass an argument, you're getting the value of underscore stuff. So the same model as we saw in the data function in jQuery a few moments ago. And then we're adding one function to our prototype to just turn this thing into a string. Two string is a very common function. So we say my pbs.myprototype.prototype. Oh, I'm in the wrong part of my own show notes again. My string equals function return some stuff, colon, and then append on this dot underscore stuff. So we have defined a prototype that contains two functions, one to get or set the stuff and one to get a string. Our objects contain one property, this dot underscore stuff. All right, if you say so. <laughs> I do. So this this I is mean, the generic. I know these are all words you've said before. I understand that, but I, we, you and I will have to have an offline session. I would like to record right now that I have no idea what any of this just did. And well, I shouldn't say any of it. A great percentage of it, I don't remember. I don't understand. I haven't seen in so long. I don't know what they do. So okay. Can we move on or should I pause the recording? We keep going. One or the other. Um, let's have a go at moving on and see what okay. happens. Um, right. Maybe it'll work. So given the above prototype, we can make objects. We can say var x equals new my prototype what's it. And then we can say console.log x dot stuff and it will return what's it. X dot stuff thingies. Then we get back. We can two string that. Hmm. So. In an ideal world, the code above and the code below would map together. So how you use the prototype and how you create the prototype. So above and below. Above was the stuff you just described, uh, the long involved stuff, and then these calling these two this variable. Yes. So okay. The I see, I see, the, I see the comparison. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So All this right. is. This is a really short summary of probably two installments or three installments of what we did way, way back. I, I, what I will actually do is update the show notes and link back to where we talk about prototypes. Good idea. Great. Um, don't know why I forgot to do that. I usually do that, uh, but I forgot to in this case. So that's how we've learned to do it many moons ago. And now we're going to redo that very subtly differently. And the subtle difference is we're going to include our new knowledge about namespaces and self-executing anonymous functions. And what you get is exactly the same code, only this time it's inside an anonymous function. And that's going to be the basis for writing things now that we know about these things. If that makes sense. Mm, not yet. I assume it will. Okay. Well, all, all I've done here is take the anonymous, the self-executing anonymous functions we did last time and just wrapped the example above inside that new logic. Yeah, I haven't read this yet, so okay, I can't well, know what you're about to say. Yeah, um, well, I've literally copied and pasted. So the only thing we're doing, the only thing we're changing there, is that we're combining our two pieces of knowledge, what we learned last time and what we learned a few months ago. That that's all I'm saying. Okay, is that we're we're combining those two things. Uh, so I would like to draw your attention to a few subtleties. So okay, let's 
So we define the namespace just like we did before, var pbs equals pbs, question mark pbs, colon, squirrely brackets, which we think is very silly looking code, but that's just the way it is. Mm -hmm. And then this time we're calling it pbs.myprototype, and we're creating the constructor in exactly the same way, and then we're creating our accessor function in exactly the same way, and then we are creating our two-string function in exactly the same way, but of course it's called pbs.pbs.everywhere. So it's, it's the same code, it's just now inside the self-executing function. And when we want to use it, the code is also the same, only this time it's new pbs.myprototype. Okay. So the only thing that really changes, it's now namespace as pbs. So now it's pbs.myprototype.prototype.toString? Yeah. Okay. Nice and short, isn't it? Okay. Um, I don't know what this does. I have no idea what this thing does. I see a lot of words I've seen before, but I don't know what this function does. I, I don't know what we've just created here. Does it okay, do so it, yeah, it allows us to build objects of a very boring prototype called my prototype. So it, when we want to create a new object, we say var some name equals new, and then the name of the object we want. Mm -hmm. is, is the, yes? Yep. So we could use other people's stuff. So uh, we could say, if we include someone else's library, we might say new imaginary number or something. Okay. But what we've done above is we've defined our own prototype. We've made our own prototype to represent something. In this case, it represents nothing of any interest. It's just called my prototype. So the relevant example would be our, we built a prototype to represent complex numbers, if you remember. Do you remember doing that one? Yes. Yeah, so the point of a prototype is to define a representation of a thing. So we are going to be building a prototype to define a clock is what we're building to. Hmm. Um, so the, the point of this here is just a refresher on the syntax. Um, okay. okay. I will definitely stick a link in the show notes to the the uh, imaginary number example because that definitely is the relevant uh, bit of jumping back to do. Now what we learned last time was this concept of a self-executing anonymous function. So I'm, I'm wondering how well or how poorly that has um, come okay. on board. Mm. <laughs> well, I, I thought I understood it last week. Okay. But so I'm... in this... Okay. okay. What's... You're showing at the bottom, you're saying we can now interact with our prototype like so, and it looks exactly the same as it did above. It doesn't look any different. So it's as though we've done some amazing magic, and yet it's exactly the same? Uh, well, in one case, we're using the, names, the, the namespace PBS, and the other case, we're not. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. There it is. It was the first line. I missed it. Okay. But yes, okay. exactly. Okay. And after that, of course, being an object, it doesn't make any difference. Yeah. 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 Gotcha. Okay. So. When we learned about anonymous functions last time, uh, the self-executing anonymous function, we were just passing it a single argument, which was the name of the namespace. Mm -hmm. And now, in this case, I am using three and two arguments. So when we're defining the function, we say that I am going to call the first thing you give me PBS. I am going to call the second thing you give me dollar. And I am going to call the last thing you give me undefined. You're so going that's to what call we, them? Name them. I'm going to name the first argument I receive, PBS. I'm going to name the second argument I receive, dollar. And I'm going to name the third argument I receive, undefined. Okay. 
So when you're defining a function, you're giving the aliases that you're going to use for things. And then at the end of the self-executing anonymous function, we execute the function. And at that stage, we pass it actual values. And we pass it PBS jQuery, and then we stop passing things. This is odd. I hope you agree. We're passing something that's called PBS. We're calling it, we're sending it PBS. Yes. So we're basically, we're saying that we're going to give it PBS and we're going to say, oh yeah, we're going to call it the same thing inside the function. So that's, we're just passing it clean through effectively there. We're just saying, you're going to call it PBS and I'm going to call it PBS too. So that's not particularly unusual. It's, it seems a bit repetitive, I'll grant you, but that, that's part of our model. And so that, you can, that, you that can create is. a function that takes as its input PBS and its function is called PBS. Well, it's oh, okay. So on line one there in our little short snippety example, we're saying I will call whatever you give me as the first argument PBS. And on line three, we're calling the function with PBS. So effectively, you're saying, well, I'm going to call you Tommy. Oh, and you call you Tommy as well. Okay. We both call you Tommy. Hmm. Okay. I assume this will have a meaning later of something I need to do with it. Okay. Let's keep going. Not really. That's, that's just copy paste. That's just. That's okay. how we learned to do it last time, and that's, that's how we're still learning to do it this time. Now, the next one, you're going to see an asymmetry here. So when we're calling the function, we say jQuery, but when we're defining the function, we say dollar. So on line one, we call the second argument dollar, and on line three, we pass it the value jQuery. What's going on there? <laughs> no idea. Don't ask me. Okay, so... By default, when you import the jQuery library, two things come into being, a variable called jQuery and an alias of that variable called just the dollar sign, which is shorter. But the dollar sign is used oh, in other code. I remember that. I remember that. Yes. Okay. Little so tiny light bulb went on. Great. Excellent. And you can check that in the console. Um, so both dollar and jQuery exist. But actually, you can optionally have the dollar not come into being. And some people choose to do that because they want to use the name dollar for something else. And so if you're writing an API, you want it to work everywhere. You want it to work for people who like the dollar and for people who only call jQuery jQuery. Hmm. But maybe you're a lazy person who doesn't like typing jQuery all the time. Hmm. Well, here you can have your cake and eat it. So at the point where we call the self-executing anonymous function, we give jQuery its full, long, laborious name. But inside our anonymous function, we can get the call at dollar because we get to choose what we call things inside oh, our anonymous function. Okay, so I like it. I like it. We are going to know, we are going to nickname whatever it was the second argument as dollar. And so in this case, we've basically gone and we are guaranteed that no matter what the person who uses our API has chosen to do in their code, in our code, we can call jQuery dollar. I like so our it. code could be short. And it's robust. So you pretty the much last plop thing, this every time you write a function. Copy, paste, copy, yeah. paste, copy, paste, every time I do an API. Okay. The last one is to deal with another really, really bad habit some programmers have. Some people redefine what undefined is. So they write undefined equals something. Okay. And which means that in my code, when I check if something is undefined, I'm assuming undefined was how, J how JavaScript to find it, if you'll excuse the horrible, mm -hmm. confusing language. But I want to be sure inside my self-executing anonymous function that undefined is genuinely, actually undefined and that no idiot has messed with it. And so the way I do that is that I say, I will call the third thing passed to me undefined, 
and then I don't pass a third thing. <laughs> okay. So then the third thing is genuinely undefined, and it shall be known as undefined, and therefore we have now undone people's <laughs> stupidity. That's really interesting. I like it. Okay. Right? It's it's This is a well-developed design pattern. I didn't come up with this design pattern. This is just a way that many, many, many people on the internet have decided is a good way to write code so that your your code is isolated, insulated, and free of other people's stupidity. So we get to use dollar and we get to use undefined in safety and comfort. It's a copy-paste job, but that's why it's this way. I will always do that. Great. Perfect. Right, so that's it. So that's that's all the new stuff. So now I just want to put all this into actual action by making a better clock. So we have a clock, but now we're going to have a better clock. So the main features of this better clock is that I'm going to switch back into object-oriented code like we did way, way, way back when we were in the playground because I would like to have infinitely many clocks on the one page conceivably. I would like you to be able to make new clocks all the time. I'll have a clock in Dublin time over here and I'll have a clock in LA time over there and I'll have a clock in Jamaica time somewhere else. So I want object-oriented clocks. Yeah, well, that one of the cases I was thinking of for that is I'd like to have my page show, here's what time it is at your house, and here's what time it is at Allison's house. Hmm. That's a good idea. Yeah. It's a very good idea. So it'll say it's your, it's, it's three, you know, it's noon your time in Dublin, uh, which means it's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, four in the morning, Allison's time. No, it's not time for the live show. <laughs> <laughs> I am pretty sure you can achieve that because it is possible using JavaScript to find out the time zone of the local computer. I'm sure we can do that. So we can definitely do that, yes. Okay. Um, Now, something we are going to do, and why why it's useful won't become obvious until later, but I am going to, with this clock, so the way it works is we take a span as a starting point and then we make it be a clock. And I'm going to use a data attribute on that span to stick a copy of the object we just made into the span. So the span that is a clock will contain a reference to the object that represents that clock. Hmm. So okay. what, what we're doing is we're tying the HTML and the JavaScript together in a way. Okay. Uh, I also would like it to be possible to specify the time zone directly from the HTML, which again is data attributes. Okay. And finally, I would like that when the page loads, the clocks just automatically turn themselves on. So I would like it to be possible for the clock to have clocks automatically initialize when the page loads. Why wouldn't it do that? Well, right now, none of your code does anything automatically when the page loads. You have to, you have to write like special code to call your function. I'm, I'm going to say uh, you can have a clock by just including my .js file oh. and then writing some HTML and having you write zero JavaScript and still have the clocks appear. I see. Okay. So the user of the API will write no no JavaScript, just, just say, HTML. Call it and there will expeller. There will us. be clock. There will be clock. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Good. Okay. So I am, I'm going to give you the full code at the bottom all together so you can copy and paste it easily. But we're not going to just, we're going to build it by pieces and then put then just put it all together at the end. Okay. So the first thing I want to do is I want to do a little bit of groundwork. I want to lay a foundation for the code. So this code is going to be interacting with, it's going to be using jQuery objects and stuff. So I just want to write some little validation functions I can use to check arguments later. So the first one I want to do is I want to write a function to check if anything, if something, is a jQuery object. So I'm going to call that isJQuery. 
So you're going to check to see if something's jQuery by creating a variable called is jQuery? No, I'm creating a function. Var mm -hmm. is jQuery equals function. Yeah. Okay. So okay. I'm making a function which can test if whatever you give it as the first argument, which I'm going to call obj, mm -hmm. if that is a jQuery object. Okay. So this function will be used over and over again to validate inputs from people. So if type of obj not equal to object return false. If not object instance of dollar return false. Otherwise return true. So, so that what, will. What is if not object instance of dollar? That's that's saying if it's not a jQuery object. Correct. So first, is it an object? The second, is it a jQuery object? Exactly. Okay, got it. I understood that whole thing. Woohoo! And our that standard was nine thing, return... lines in a row. I understood, Bart. <laughs> and we're using our standard trick of as soon as we're unhappy, just return false. Don't bother with an else statement. Just I am not happy. I'm out of here. Yeah. So if it's not an object at all, sod off. Okay. Today, return false and be gone. And if we make it all the way to the end, well, then everything must be fine. So return true. Okay. It's sort of a standard model we've seen before. Uh, our API transforms a single HTML span into a clock. So I would like to be able to check if something is a single HTML span. So is single span seems like a good name for a function to do that. I don't know what a single span is. Okay, so a jQuery object can represent one or more, zero or more HTML elements. I want to check if a jQuery object represents exactly one span. Huh. I thought we were going to make multiple clocks. Right, but I we're going to build them one by one. Okay. So yes, I will. Okay, so I, each I don't one has to be only one. Exactly. So, so I want better to be say to clock Dublin, clock Los Angeles. Yeah, exactly. The so there are times okay. there are times in the API when I want to be sure I'm talking to one thing. Okay. And so I'm going to write a little function to help me check that. Okay. Um, and so we can just very similar code, only we also check to see if... So so we, our first check is, is the type of object? Otherwise, we return false. Mm -hmm. Our second check is, is it an instance of dollar? Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we return false. Our third check, which we definitely didn't have before, is, is the length of our object one? The length of the object. So a jQuery object that represents zero things will have a length of zero. A jQuery object that represents five things will have a length of five. So a jQuery object hmm. representing exactly one span will have a length of one. Okay. Hmm. Okay. And then the final check is we use jQuery's is function to see if that one thing we now know is in there is a span. If it is a span, we return true. If it isn't a span, How we return false. How would it not false. be a span? Well, I could give you a single paragraph. That would pass the first test. It would pass the second test. It would pass the third test. It wouldn't be until we get to line 11 that it finally goes, oh, you're not what I wanted after all. You're a paragraph, not a span. Why wouldn't you look for the span first? That would certainly be more efficient. Well, no, because if you try to call dot is on something that isn't a jQuery object, you get a, you get an exception. JavaScript oh, okay. will go, okay. can't do that. Okay, so you got to make sure that first. Okay. Yeah. All yeah right. So you make sure you have, a, you have a jQuery object, and then you start calling jQuery functions. Okay. So gotcha. dot is is a jQuery function, so we've got to make sure we're jQuery. Okay. And then the last thing we might want to validate is the time zone. Maybe we shouldn't have our code say, okay, fine, I'll make you a clock in time zone, boogers, watch him a jigger. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's not a good idea. Okay. So we need to test if a string really is a valid time zone. Well, how do we do that? I guess we could go to Wikipedia, look up all the time zones, create a massive big if statement to check all of them. 
Thankfully, we don't have to do that. That would okay. be horrible. If we read the documentation for moment.js, it tells us that there is a function named moment.tz.names, and that function returns an array of strings. Mm-hmm. And each of those strings is a valid time zone, and right. every valid time zone is in that array. So we could, in theory, loop through that array each time we want to check. That sounds and that fun. Give... Yeah, and that would work. That would give us a valid answer. It okay. would be slow, right? Okay. You want it every single time you want to check a time zone, we've got to loop through every single possible time zone. That will be slow. It's also a problem that comes up over and over and over again, that you want to check if a string is a member of a set of strings. Okay. It's a very common problem. So actually, there's a common solution. There's a design pattern for dealing with this problem. It's a concept known as a lookup table. So the idea of a lookup table is you you build a new object, and every valid value is a key in your new object that maps to the value true. So I'll illustrate this point with a very simple one for the days of the week. So we say var days of the week equals Monday true, Tuesday true, Wednesday true, Thursday true, Friday true, Saturday true, and Sunday true. Okay. This would be so we, this would be like moment.tz.names? No, moment.tz.names is a function that returns an array of strings. Like so this. I say I want to build a lookup table. Is this the lookup table that we're looking at? So this is an example of a lookup table. This is a okay. really simple lookup table for days of the week. And once we've built the lookup table, we can then write a function to check if something is a day of the week in a single line of code after we've made the lookup table. So function is day of week D can simply say return days of week D question mark true colon false. Hey, hang on, so hang on, our... back up. I, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to figure out which represents what. This, this var days of the week is the... a lookup table. Okay. Right. I it's understand a, it's a lookup table, but try bring it back to this example of the time zones um, uh, example. Which is this? Is this the the time zones database? This no. This okay. So this is a new representation whose only job is to make searching easier, which we are going to build from the time zones database. So this okay. is not the original data. This is a new piece of data we are going to create to allow us to quickly search. Okay. So moment.tz.names returns a list. So it will return an array that contains America slash Los Angeles, Europe slash Dublin, Europe slash okay, Brussels. <laughs> trying to right? bring it back to an example I can understand in comparison, is it, would it have Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday? Is that what it yes. would have if it were in this example? But it wouldn't have the trues. Right. It would be the array... Monday, comma, Tuesday, comma, Wednesday, comma. That's what I'm Thursday. looking for. I'm trying to get it back. What does this example represent? Okay. All right. Okay. So with this lookup table of the days of the week, we can write a function to check if something is a day of the week very simply. We can just say return days of the week D, question mark, true, colon, false. So in other words, if you call that function with Tuesday, then it will go days of the week Tuesday. Is that equal to true? Yes, it is. Then return true. Otherwise, return false. If you stick boogers in there and you say days of the week boogers, well, there's no key value pair for boogers, so that's undefined. So then we return false. Why do you have to t- set them all to true first? Well, if you didn't set them all to true, then they would not exist as key value pairs in the lookup table. 
I'm confused why we're we've got a lookup table that already tells us Monday through Sunday is true. Okay, but that's just a piece of data. That's not a function to actually do anything with. That's a data structure. Yeah. So what would we put in there? Would we put in Ireland, you know, Dublin, Los Angeles? I'm we not- would. Yes, we. Yeah. So in our lookup table, when we're finished creating it, it will contain a key for every time zone that exists in the world. So America slash Los Angeles colon true. Europe wow, slash that seems, Dublin, colon, true. Wow, that seems inefficient to create that when that already exists. But it doesn't already exist. It exists as a list, which means that the only way to find data is to search the entire list every time. That's inefficient. But the we're going to create a list. Search, no, we're creating a lookup table. How's the a lookup, lookup table, table you more can search? efficient than a list? They sound like the same thing to me. Okay. But you can access anything in a key in a key value pair object just by knowing by just by knowing its key. So that's why that function is a three liner, because the lookup table exists. Otherwise, we'd have to loop through everything and check every value. So if I said you write me a function to check if a string is a day of the week, and I don't let you use a lookup table, how would that how would that function look? They they sound like the exact same thing to me, Bart. A list of names versus a list of names with the word true okay. after them sound exactly okay. the same to me and don't sound like they're two different things. So okay. I don't see why this is more efficient. Exactly, which is why I'm asking you, write me a function to check if a string is a day of the week without using a lookup table. Search the find... list for the name. If it's in there, it's true. If it's okay. not in there, it's false. So how do you search the list? You have to loop through everything. How do you search a lookup table without looking through everything? Uh, just like you do on line two of the example function there. You just say name of lookup table, open square bracket, and pass it in your string. Okay. That's- they sound like the same thing to me, but I, I, we can move on. I believe you. It sounds exactly the no, same no, no, to me. No, 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 no. Let's not move on because this is an important, this, this is a technique that's used an awful lot. So and this and is actually- I will use it. I promise. I just don't understand the functional difference between a table that says Monday colon true and a table that says Monday. I can just say that if it finds it in the list, then it's true. I don't see why it has to have the word true next to it to make it a table instead of a list. Two-dimensional versus one-dimensional. Same thing to me. There's no extra information other than they're all true. Okay, remember, okay, so a key, okay, but they're key value pairs, so you can access them instantly. How? You have you to can, look through them until you find the right one, don't no, you? No, with a key value pair, you just say inside the square brackets, the name of the key you want, and out will come the value. So I just say days of the week Monday is just immediately true, instantly. It's a, it's, it's a days but, of the week. But the open, way it does open. that is it looks through the table till it finds Monday and returns the, the, the value of Monday. No. Absolutely not. The, the, the hash tables don't work like that. Hash tables are not loops that you go through over and over again. I didn't say loop. They're, I didn't say loop. But it doesn't have to do that. It doesn't have to check. It can go. It goes straight from one to the other. If you have an object that contains the key boogers, it doesn't have to check every key in the object. It just goes straight to boogers. So we are making keys Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So if the key exists, you go straight to it instantly. So how does it go straight to it? It has already loaded that information? It already knows. Yes. Yes, exactly. So you create the lookup table once, and then you have an instant mapping from every correct answer to the value true. But it has to learn all those values. Those have to be loaded 
once. So if you're only ever going to search once, then you're right. There's no efficiency here. But if okay. you're going to search 100 times, if you check the list every time, that's 100 loops. I got you. If you okay. create a lookup table, okay. then you build once, use infinity. Yes? Yeah. Okay. Phew. Okay. Okay. That's important because that, that's, that's one of those little things that comes up all the time in computer science. So we now need to do the same thing for our time zone. So the days of the week is just a little example, right? Because a very simplistic example, there's only seven of them. Whereas in terms of time zones, there's loads more than that. So the first thing we do in our little bit of code for a real library is we make a TZ lookup, a time zone lookup. And we start it off as an empty object. So we say var TZ lookup equals squirrely brackets. And then we got to loop through every single time zone and add it into the lookup table with the value true. So we say moment.tz.names.foreach. We use an anonymous function with the for each to loop through. And we just add a new entry into our lookup with the name of the time zone and the value true. Hmm. Why does that not already exist? You would think that thing, that object would exist and you just go grab one instead of having to build it yourself. I would. I thought so too. <laughs> okay. Good. I was expecting to find a function in there called is valid time zone or something to help me validate a time zone. And I did not find any such function in the API. So therefore, we, I, the only conclusion I came to is, okay, fine, I'll build my own. Okay, good. A logical question for once. <laughs> it is a very logical question. Okay. Uh, I, if I had written the API, I would have put it in there. It's okay. like something people might want to do. Um, so now we have this lookup table. So now we can write our function var is valid time zone, and it just becomes a very simple function. The first thing we do is we make sure that we actually got a string, because otherwise it can't possibly be a key in a key value pair if it's not a string. So we say if type of the thing we're testing is not a string, return false. And then we say Why return. Would, well, you're just not trusting this database to, to have the right information? Just no, in I'm case. not trusting it. It's not the database I'm not trusting, it's the user input. So the job of this function is to check if oh, anything... I'm sorry. Me. I'm sorry. Yes. If the I'm string they put me. in, if I, if I write in um, Wellington and Wellington isn't in that table, Auckland is, you need to be able to... Oh, no, no, no. This is just, is it a string? Yeah, so the first thing is, is it a string? Because you could, I could say, is valid time zone... So you could say, is valid time zone four? Yeah. Well, four isn't a string. So that doesn't really test for if I put in an invalid city. No. So that the first step is just, is it a string? Because okay. if it isn't a string, we're just, we're just not interested. Okay. Gotcha. The answer is, is no. The answer I is always it. no. Okay. And then, then we go into our lookup table. So we return TZ lookup and then what they passed in, which we're calling TZ. Mm -hmm. And then we say, if that's true, then return true. Otherwise, return false. Okay. And that's it. So now we have a way of checking if someone's input is actually a real time zone. Okay. So with that groundwork laid, we now have basically the ability to check that the data coming into our API is correct. That's not exciting, but it is useful to have that done because now yeah. we can start working on the actual API. So we are going to build a prototype, which is going to represent the generic clock. So a clock, every clock will have this prototype. And this prototype is going to have one piece of data. It's going to have two pieces of data in its insides. What span am I? In other words, which actual span is where all the bits are? And what time zone am I? So I am a clock. I am, rep I am represented by a span and I have a time zone. So they're my two pieces of data. Okay. So my constructor takes two arguments. Dollar span, I'm calling it because 
I want it to be a span mm-hmm. and TZ because I want it to be a time zone. Right. So the first thing I do is my data validation, but it's really simple code now because uh, I just say, if not is single span dollar span, throw new error. This is not what I wanted, basically. Right. We so already we have defined is single span. Right. Is single span is written. So we're done with that. We just, okay, fine. The next thing I want to do is I want to make sure after I've built the clock, I'm going to give it the class PBS world clock. And I don't want to stick a clock on top of a clock. So I'm oh. just going to check. <laughs> Did I already do you? Oh. So if this does dollar span dot is dot PBS world clock, can it initialize a world clock into a span that is already initialized as a world clock? Oh, so nice, I just nice. Jump, right, just a little don't. Okay, by using my... the CSS, that's an interesting trick. Yes. Okay. And actually park that because later on you're going to see where I actually put that class in because if I don't put the class in, that won't work. Um, yeah, right. I'm just going to save the second argument. So this.underscore.dollarspan equals dollar span. Just save okay. it for later. It's being shoved into the object. Then I got to make sure we have a time zone. So I am going to accept the time zone in one of three ways. Either you pass it as a second argument or you specify as a data attribute or I give you a default. And the order of preference is I'm going to check the arguments first, then the data attribute, and if all else fails, fine, we'll go with the default. So I understand getting it as a string because that's what we said we were going to be passed. What do you mean by getting it as a data attribute? Okay, so the first argument is a span, and if it Mm -hmm. wasn't a span, we've already gone and thrown an error and gotten cranky. So it is definitely a span by now in the code. So that span could have a data attribute on it. So in the HTML, it might be open angle bracket span space data minus time zone equals New York, America slash New York. You can put an equation in there? Well, it's it not an equation. Data? It's value, right? It's a time zone is just a string, right? So the data can be a string. So the so time zone is a string. Oh, wow. I didn't know you could do that. Okay. Absolutely, you can. Oh, I guess you set the skew equal to something. or Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we so the person could have put the time zone into the HTML. So let's check if it's there. So we just okay. say if dollar span dot data time zone, well we'll use that then. Okay. Otherwise, if we didn't find it in the arguments and we didn't find it in the HTML, well then you're getting London slash or Europe slash London because that's where Greenwich is. Did I miss it? I never saw us I don't remember us writing dot underscore time zone somewhere. Uh, okay, we're creating it right now. We're saying, so if... Oh, oh, right, right, right. Okay, got it, yeah. This yeah. dot underscore time yeah, so, zone becomes TZ. Or it becomes span.data time zone, or it becomes Europe slash London. So at the end of that if statement, those three if statements there, it will have a value. It'll okay. either be the argument or the data or the default. And since you're Eurocentric, it became Europe slash London. Fine. Well, no, <laughs> that's that's zero, right? UTC, know, that's UTC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, as an Irish, you know, living in Ireland, picking England is not particularly politically popular. <laughs> okay. It's just sensible, right? All right. Yeah. Fine. Now, at this point, so that time zone could have come from the user or it might be my default, but let's just validate it. So we already wrote our function is valid time zone. So let's just make sure it's a valid time zone. And now we never have to think about it again. Okay. I'm now going to save into my object another value interval id so this dot underscore interval id we're going to use it later to make our clock tick for now i'm just going to put in zero Mm -hmm. just it's a placeholder okay and now we're going to do code that looks very similar to last time 
So first thing I do is I empty our span, which has now been saved. So on line 13, I said this dot underscore dollar span becomes equal to the span that was passed in as the first argument. Right. So then I say this dot underscore dollar span dot empty. Poof. Uh-huh. It's now empty. Oh, and then you add class. the class so that we can find there it we. to see if we already yeah. did it. Exactly. So there we go. We've now said I've taken ownership of you. Okay. Then we create a new span, which we call this dot underscore dollar hours. And we also give that one a class PBS world clock hours, just in case we want to CSS style the hours later. Mm-hmm. Might be useful. Then we say append that into the span. So our initial span that we emptied now contains another span for the hours. Then we make one for the separator, and then we make one for the minutes. So we repeat that process. So at the end of it all, we have our original span that we emptied with three new spans inside it. I reserve the right to be cranky again later, uh, but this actually made sense. Now I'm starting to get what you were saying earlier with the prototype. Okay. I'm starting to get the, because it's the stuff we did before, but it's just got a this dot underscore in front of it. And that starts to look the same. So I follow what you're doing. Brilliant. The last thing is slightly magical for now. I am going to shove the entire object we've just built into the span as a data attribute. Oh, that's right. Okay, so you used our, our trick of giving passing it two things. Yeah, um, and the second thing I passed it is this. Ah, look at that. And I'm going to say no more about that until the, until the very end. Okay. Because it's something which is useful to the end user, maybe. And actually, it'll be useful in your homework. But for now, we'll just, just park it. Then I'm going to call a function that I haven't even defined yet, but we'll define shortly, called start, which okay. is going to start. The so the constructor makes sure all the data is fine, saves everything we need, empties the span, inserts bits for the hours, separator, and minutes, and then it will start the clock ticking. How it starts the clock ticking, we'll look at in a moment. All right. Okay. And that's our constructor done. Uh, the next thing we're going to do is our clocks have a time zone. So I'm going to provide a function to allow the user to cha- to see what time zone a given clock has and or to change the time zone should they want a different time zone. Okay. So we're using our standard trick of if you give me no arguments, I'll tell you what I am now. And if you give me an argument, I'll change to what you told me to be. Okay. So if there is a first argument, try use it as a time zone. So if arguments.length greater than or equal to one, in other words, there is an argument, Mm -hmm. then we say check the validity because if it's not valid, throw throw an error. Mm -hmm. I'm really not happy that you've asked me to set a time zone of boogers. Okay. Uh, Assuming that doesn't throw an error, we say this dot underscore time zone equals whatever the first argument was, argument zero. And then always just return the current value. So return this that underscore time zone. So this is almost identical to what we did when we were creating our virtual number, not virtual numbers, imaginary numbers. Imaginary numbers, yeah. We had a function for accessing the real part and the imaginary part. Well, here's a function for accessing the time zone. And again, we do our data validation so that no one can shove silly data into our object because that would make our object very cranky. Uh. I'm now going to write an anonymous, a, 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 a sort of, a, um, not anonymous, basically a, a function, just a local function called render clock. And its job is going to be to render a given clock. Okay. In other words, to write the time. 
Okay. So this code is massively similar to what you've seen before. We take as an argument of the clock it is we want to manipulate. Mm -hmm. We say var now equals moment dot tz clock dot underscore time zone. Then we say clock dot underscore dollar hours dot text is now dot format hh clock dot underscore minutes dot text is now dot format mm. And then we blink the separator. And I've decided to blink the separator in a whole different way here, just because that way you see two things. <laughs> Look, the mo my little friend, the modulus. Your best friend, the modulus, comes along. So I've decided that if the seconds are even, we fade out. And if the seconds are odd, we fade in. I like it. So um, stopping you here for a second. So this is var render clock. What mm -hmm. did that whole thing we did before do? That pbs.worldclock that we did all our span empties, dollar hours? I thought we were making the clock there. We are, but we're now writing this little function that we're going to use in a moment to start our clock with. So this function it seems is going to be heeded by the rest. But it's not duplicative because none of that code was anywhere above, right? Yeah, it was. No, not in our not in our example that we've been building. Yeah, up the here. clock dot underscore hour dot text dot now dot format. That stuff's all right up above. You are not no, not the format. So if we just we've created the spans, oh. but they're empty. Oh. Yeah, we shoot. We just and I didn't them. understand that like the way I thought I did, but now I see the part where you do that. Okay, all right. Okay, so all we did there was make empty spans, and then we say call this start function that we haven't written. So this but we we this told them they were hours and minutes and seconds and all that. Yeah, sure. We we made the placeholder. We made it. Up, we set everything up, hmm. but we haven't put the time right now into it yet. So this function here's job is to say, okay, great. Someone else has arranged everything the way I need it to be. What time is it now? And let me shove everything into the place that was supposed to be. That's been pre-prepared for me. That's been kindly okay. set up. All this function does is check the time and then put everything in the right place, knowing that the right places have all been carefully set up and created. Okay. So we've, we, we're breaking apart our logic, I guess, but that's, that's kind of a good thing. You're building things up in pieces. So we now have the ability to put the time into a clock, so we can put that aside. So the next thing I want to do is build some functions for making the clock actually tick. And I'm, I'm going to make two of them. I'm going to make a function to start the clock and a function to stop the clock. I don't know why, but I figured it seemed wrong to be able to start something and then have <laughs> no way to turn it off. Okay. Just, I don't know. It felt wrong. Closure. Yes. So okay. we want every clock to have the ability to start. So we add that to the prototype for clocks. So pbs.worldclock.prototype.start equals function. Now, if the clock is already started, we want to do nothing. And I'd like you to park that test for about five lines of code, because then you'll see how it relates back to in a moment. So this is a way of testing whether or not we've been here before. Okay. And tell the audience how you, you didn't say out loud how you, uh, Check to see if it was started. Or you I'm said if the interval that. is not equal to zero. Yes. Okay. And the reasons that will become obvious when we get okay. down to line 13, or 14 okay. and 15. So for now, we're just saying, so it is going, we're going to check if this, this dot interval ID is, if it's anything other than zero, the clock's already running. So okay. just sod off, return. Okay. Assuming we haven't sodded off, the first thing I want to do is put the current time right now this second in. So render clock this. Mm -hmm. So our render clock function expects to be handed a clock. This is our clock, so render clock this. Okay. Now I'd like to start an interval. Now, this is a trick we came across a few times way, way, way back. Every function has its own copy of this. So inside our anonymous function, inside set interval, if we called this, it will be the wrong this. So I make a new variable called self and make it equal to this. 
this is we have done this of before. course you named it this it is the same thing <laughs> this is annoying right this this is one of those things where javascript makes your life a little bit difficult and this is one of those things that developers do over and over again var self equals this is all over the place and you'll see it whenever you need the this from the outer function available inside the anonymous function. Okay. So we're just saying, make a new variable self. And it, it is this, but just call it self so that the anonymous function doesn't go horribly wrong. Okay. So we say this.intervalid equals set interval. So when you set interval, you're making a new thing that happens every X amount of time. And it has an ID and the ID is what's returned. So we're taking that ID and we're shoving it into this that underscore interval id and that id is always greater than zero so now we know how our test up front works yes sure when the clock has started it will have an id and that id will be some number that is greater than zero right so at the start of our function we're saying if our interval isn't zero which is where we we started it if where we created it then the clock's already running if it's anything other than zero the clock is running let me guess to stop it you check to see if it is zero to stop it, you check to see if it is zero, and then you call the clear interval function, and clear interval needs to know the ID of the interval you want to make go away, and that we have safely saved into this that underscore interval ID. Okay. So that's why we can say clear interval, this that underscore interval ID, and then the last thing our stop function does is it says this that underscore interval ID equals zero. So right. then you can start and stop clocks. Okay. So the last thing our prototype is going to have is the ability to do stuff automatically. So we now have everything done apart from the automation. So that's the last little piece we're going to do is the automation, and then we're finished. So I am going to make a function called auto-initialize, which is going to take as an argument a jQuery object. And that jQuery object it is optional. If you don't give it any jQuery object, it's going to assume you want to check the entire document. If you give it a jQuery object, it will only check inside that jQuery object. So every span that has the class PBS World Clock Auto should automatically start. That's that's how that's the rule I'm making. So what this auto initialize function does is it goes and looks for spans with the class PBS World Clock Auto, and every one it finds, it turns into a clock. Hmm. So that's the, the the big picture English, and let's look at the little picture code. Okay. So we say pbs.worldclock.autoinitialize equals function. And we say that it, we, we name the first argument dollar containers. What, fun, what argument? So, so the argument, so, okay. So the first thing you will pass, we will call dollar containers. Why are we passing it anything? Who's passing it something? So whoever, whenever someone says auto-initialize, there, there may or may not be an argument there. If there's an argument there, How it would should be... How are they passing it, and why would there be an argument? Someone is going to say pbs.worldclock auto-initialize open round bracket. So basically, someone's going to say expelliarmus on this, and when they say expelliarmus on this, they may or may not give us an argument. If they do, we're going to call it dollar containers. Why wouldn't it be an anonymous function? Well, it isn't an anonymous function, because we just said pbs.worldclock auto-initialize equals function. So we're telling it this function is going to have the name yeah, pbs. just done an open close on the parentheses and then it would have been an anonymous function. What, what, is, what is in containers? I don't know what that variable is for. Okay, so I am saying, so by default, we're going to initialize every clock on the entire page. But what if we only want to initialize the clocks inside the header? 
then we could use that, that as you know that's really adding complexity here to something that's already really really hard to follow i don't know why we need to be specific on that okay well think think of it as the search space and the very first thing we do is we say we default the search space to the entire document so if there is no okay so if you had one of those like little quote things you could have that be the container yeah, so exactly. Cool so you might only want the clocks to exist within the body content of your document or something. Or yeah. maybe you're going to okay. make some new spans that you then want to initialize. So it's just a way of limiting this functions active. It, it's, it's good manners okay. to, I understand to, to allow. That. But anyway, okay. the default is the whole thing. So if there is no containers, make it be dollar document. Everything. We'll search everything. Gotcha. Um, at this stage, you want to make sure that $containers is a valid value. So maybe you passed it into the function, or maybe we defaulted it. But either way, let's make sure it is a jQuery object. So we'll use our function we wrote earlier to make sure it's valid data. Otherwise, we throw an error and get stroppy. At that point, we do a search. So we're standard old jQuery dollar function. So $span.pbsworldclockauto. So we're searching for all spans with the class pbsworldclockauto inside $containers, which defaults to the entire document. Gotcha. And then we do an each. So for every span we find that is of class PBS World Clock Auto, we are going to say new PBS World Clock with that span. Okay. And then the last thing we do so that we don't auto ink, so that if someone calls auto initialize again and we don't end up stomping on ourselves, we remove the class PBS World Clock Auto. After you initialize it? Right, so we're saying, okay. if you have this class, we're going to automatically initialize it. And when we're done doing that, we're going to take the class off so that if you call the function again, we're not going to accidentally repeat ourselves. So in our documentation, we tell it, if you want to be specific, give us a container. Uh, yes. And, but make sure you put in pbs-worldclock-auto in the class, and then it'll get initialized and erased. Correct. Okay. That's exactly what the documentation would say. Got it. Okay. The last piece of this, to make it happen completely automatically, to make it like, the page loads and all of a sudden it's done, we can include right within our API, we can say, we can use the dollar function to automatically make something happen when the document loads. And what we're going to make automatically happen is pbs.worldclock.auto initialize with no arguments. So when the document loads, auto initialize runs with no arguments. In other words, the entire document is searched and everything we find gets initialized. Okay. So that's how we do the automation. And that's it. So. What we have below here for many, many lines of scrolling is exactly the same code, but with all the doc comments put in to make it a full documented API. So all the documentation is there and it's all one after the other, after the other, after the other. In other words, this is, as you will find in the zip file, this is lib slash pbs.worldclock.js. There's not a single line of code in here that we haven't already seen and talked about. But it's all together here, ready to be copied and pasted, and it's very heavily documented, which is why it's very, very long. 366 lines. Okay, got it. Okay. So that's the API. So now let's see it in action with some HTML, because that makes things more clear. So and then we can now, again, so the, there's a zip file linked at the very top of the show, which contains the JS file and this HTML file. If you extract that zip file, you'll get a folder named PBS26. If you take that folder and put it into the document root of your local web folder, then you'll have localhost forward slash PBS26. And in there, you'll find PBS26.html. So if you go to that in the browser, you can see this happening for real. And here's the code. Cool. So 
Actually, do you want to look at it first so that we can see what we're describing? So does that make sense? I don't know if we have a lot of time. Sure, but let's just, I'll, I want you I mean, to I'm see I'm looking at it visually. I mean, I'm, I'm okay, looking at the clock I mean. you've got running. Right. So you can see that our demo page contains a little clock in line and a big clock taking up lots of space. Uh-huh. One of them is Dublin time and one of them is Los Angeles time. As God intended. Okay. <laughs> the Dublin clock has been initialized using the constructor and the Los Angeles clock was automatically generated. Okay. So let's look at the HTML code to see both of those happen. We won't look at it in much detail because there's not much of it here. So we have our standard HTML head. We import the jQuery library. We import moment.js. And then we import our world clock API. So we say script type equals Texas JavaScript source equals lib pbs world clock.js. Mm -hmm. Then we have a little bit of local script where we're going to do the Dublin clock. And so we say dollar function. So in other words, when the page loads, run the following code. New pbs world clock. And we pass it in dollar clock one. They're dollar pound sign clock one. In other words, search the document for something with the ID of clock one. Use that as the first argument. And as a second argument, give the string Europe slash Dublin. So in the code, you'll see that uh, the thing with the ID of clock one is the span. So that span heads into the new the, the constructor along with Europe Dublin. And the result, as you can see on the real page, is the time in Dublin right now. So that is yeah. how we turn that empty span in the HTML into a clock manually we say new pbs world clock the span and then the string so that's the manual one now let's look at the html for the non-manual one so on line 78 is where that is so span id equals clock 2 data minus time zone equals america slash los angeles class equals pbs world clock auto hmm that was all we had to type and the api did all the rest automatically that's pretty cool the only other thing in here, then, is the CSS to actually style our clocks. And that's just CSS like we've seen before. Font weight, border style, color, font family, all the stuff we've seen before. So that's our API and an example of its use. Cool. So that is a pretty good, like, we've improved a lot from what we did for our homework, right? This, this is a better clock. Would yeah. you agree? Oh, yeah. Yeah. A more robust the, clock? It's a more robust clock. And like you say, a reusable clock. clock. A reusable clock and a clock that someone can use. If you only wanted the second clock, you didn't have to write a single line of JavaScript. You just had to include my API. And then you just wrote some HTML and gave it a class. And then magically it became a clock. That's pretty easy to use. You're using a JavaScript API and you haven't written a single line of JavaScript. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And the styles are all, that's, somebody could put in whatever they want exactly and i left that to people to do whatever they want because well right. I, what, what i i happen to like black with silly green texts i'm sure someone mm -hmm. hates it i'm sure yeah. a lot of people hate it. <laughs> so do your own thing that's fine okay now so we actually are going to make this okay so the other thing to say is this is fully documented if you want to the commands are in the show notes to build the js doc and it will put it in a folder called docs and the command is in the show notes to build the special documentation with the documentation of all the private stuff as well. So the developer docs. You may look at those at your leisure. There is a copy of them on my website. So there's links in the show notes to public docs and private docs. I don't understand public and private docs. Okay, so the public docs only contain the stuff that a user of the API would want. So some a web developer who wanted to embed a clock would just look at the public stuff. But if someone wanted to improve on the clock, they would go to the other one. 
Exactly. Okay. Or you looking to fix a bug or you looking to add a feature would look at the developer docs. Okay. Because they contain stuff that no one outside never needs to know. So they're there for you to play with and they might be useful to do your homework. But we don't really need them now. Okay. Um, the other thing, do you remember I asked you to park something? I asked you to just park this thing of we're shoving a reference to the clock as a data attribute into the clock. Remember, it was... Uh, Is that the self-this thing? Yeah, exactly, okay. where we get past this as we shoved this in. It's not the self-this thing. It's the thing where I said dollar, this that underscore dollar span dot data uh, PBS world clock comma this. We're, we're sticking... So we stuck a reference to the object that represents the clock into a data object, a data attribute on the span that is the clock, which is a mouthful to say. Yeah. <laughs> so the span with the ID of clock one contains a data attribute that is the object that represents itself. So that means we can do things like, and you can stick this into the console and test it yourself. We can say, dollar clock dollar parent sign clock one so get the jquery object for the thing on the page with the id of clock one dot data pbs world clock in other words fetch me whatever is that data attribute that will actually get us back our clock and then we can say dot stop or we could say dot start so if you copy and paste that in you can watch the doubling clock stop hmm okay and you can start it again. Okay. And that's only possible because we put a reference to the object into the span. Okay. Okay. Just saying. That was one of the cool things about data attributes. We couldn't have done that. Without data attributes, that wouldn't have been possible for you to do. Hmm. Now, your next homework is for our third and final Uber super clock. Right? So we, we've gotten better, but I wanted to make it even better. So the first... Not flaw. The first suboptimumness about this new better clock is that it's not very configurable. It's 24 hours whether you like it or not. It never shows you the seconds. And the cursor always blinks. I think all three of those things should be optional so that people could have either 12 hour or 24 hour if they wanted. People should get to choose whether or not they want to see down to the second. Maybe someone is really paranoid and wants to see that you start your show at exactly four seconds past five o'clock or something. And maybe people hate the blinking. Okay. But they're plausible things, right? Mm -hmm. So I would like you to make the API. So right now, the only thing that's configurable is the time zone. So using the time zone as your example, I would like you to have the ability to configure the format, whether or not there are seconds and whether the separator blinks. And all of those should be doable through the constructor or through data attributes, like we did the time zone. And they hmm. should all have a default value. Hmm. So okay. the time zone is your example here, right? The time zone is already configurable. Now I want you to make these three things configurable too. Okay. I would finally like you to make two extra functions, one called stop all, and another one called start all, that will search the entire document for clocks and either... Stop them all or start them all. Just and as an exercise, I can't think why someone would want to do that. Maybe, I, yeah. Well, mainly because it, it makes use of the example I showed you above, that you can use the data attribute to stop a single clock. That's a really good starting point for how you might go about stopping all the clocks. 
Okay. All right. Uh, it's I would take a say, lot of absorption here. <laughs> it is. The final thing I'll say is feel free to rename the the namespace from PBS to something of your own choosing. Feel free to make this your API. Hmm. Okay. You don't have to make it PBS dot. You can make it Allison dot. Podfeet dot is probably what you'll end up using. Probably. So I did already name. add my name to the uh, to the author at the top. <laughs> there you go. Allison Bart and Allison. So the the only thing oh the only thing I would have in there is in your documentation it will be good practice to acknowledge where the code came from. So in other words, this library is based upon mm-hmm. the example from Programming by Style twenty six. Right. So that's your homework. So take a good clock and make it great. So we're supposed to take the clock you made, not the clock we made. Yes. And do this. Yeah, exactly. So the clock we've built together today okay. as the entire content of this show, pretty much. Okay. That's your starting point. You may rename things to make them differently. That is entirely up to you. But okay. there, there's your, your starting point. And then make it be even better by allowing you to configure those three things and add the stop all and start all functions. So just to put us into context now, this we sort of finished up a pretty big part of our series now, and I'm going to move us on next time to something we have ignored. We have, and it's been really hard to ignore. It's made my life really difficult to keep ignoring this because it would be so much easier to do examples if we weren't ignoring this. But we haven't shown you how to take user input on the web. Yeah, last time we did user input was pbs.input. Exactly. The playground had input, but the actual internet hasn't had input for us. So I think it's about time we rectified that rather. It's not an oversight. It's an intentional. We're not doing this already, but we're ready now and let's do it because it's making it really hard to come up with useful real world examples if I can never take input from the user. (laughs) Right. That's weird, though. I'm looking forward to that. Exactly. And of course, what use is a button if you don't know enough JavaScript to make the button do something? So that's why we're doing it in this order. But right, buttons, inputs, drop downs, checkboxes, radio buttons. Yay. All of this is where we're going next. Please don't do them all in one lesson. Oh, God, no. God, oh, no, 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 no. Definitely not. All right. We will be building this up slowly because there's a lot to take in here. This is a big topic, so it will be many installments. Okay, cool. I hope they're little tiny bite-sized ones. This was, I feel like I just ate Thanksgiving dinner today. I'm really sorry about that because when I was writing and I thought I was giving you a, a, an amuse-bouche. Really? Okay. Well, uh, you eat a lot more for your amuse-bouches than I do. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Bart, we'll talk to you again in a couple of weeks. I will talk to you soon. And until then, happy computing. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond. We are now supported by Patreon. So if you go over to podfeet.com slash Patreon, you can pledge your support to the show in weekly installments. If you don't have money to spare, I understand that. And it would be great if you used our Amazon affiliate links when you buy things on Amazon anyway, and a little bit of money goes to help the show. I love feedback, so please send me email at allison at podfeed.com. And you can join in our Facebook group over at podfeed.com slash Facebook and our community at podfeed.com slash Google+. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed. 